0: Galatians chapter 2, there's a question that always comes to mind when we talk about the subject of God's grace, particularly in historic Protestant churches where we say salvation comes by grace alone, that it doesn't involve works of any kind. We believe that, but as you can imagine, that would raise some questions in people's minds. We're not the first to ask some of these questions. In fact, Paul uh, anticipates and, and tries to address these questions Uh, And he summarizes it really not so much in Galatians as he does in another book. And in the book of Romans, he summarizes it in this way. In Romans chapter 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if this is all of grace and it's not about what I do, and if God forgives me in spite of what I do, then is the teaching of grace, is it inherently teaching me that that means I'm just free to live however I want to live? Now, there's a couple of different schools of thought that would lead a person to ask that question. One is a school of fear, all right? I am afraid of grace because I'm afraid if that's all it is, then I'm going to end up trapped in my sin. And so what that leads to then is legalism. Fear-based religion that says there's got to be something added to this leads to, i gotta, I got to put a hedge around myself, I've got to build some of my own rules, I've got to perhaps even impose them on my family and friends. That's legalism. There's another school of thought that prompts this question, and it's the school motivated by foolishness that leads to license. I can live however I want. But at the end of the day, these sound very different but they're two sides of the exact same coin. Anybody, anybody in here other than me ever had a fear of something that ended up being nothing? Yeah, I, when I was a child, wasn't the wisest thing my parents did, but they allowed me to see the movie Jaws. And so for months, now this is the cruel part of it, cruel and unusual punishment is letting your kids see that movie in May. Forget about the beach, I wouldn't even get in a pool. For months because that's what I saw. That was my visual. But you know what cured me of that? Getting to see a documentary on the movie and finally coming to the realization, it was like a switch went off in my head. It's like, oh, that's not even real. I mean, sharks are real. Sharks will kill you dead. But but that thing, it's not real. I was afraid of nothing. And so really, if you fear that grace is going to encourage you to sin, then whatever grace you've got in your mind is basically a mechanical shark. It, it's not real, it's not genuine, and it's certainly not the grace that's described in the word of God, okay? And fear is what's driving the church at Galatia at this point. And there's two kinds of fear, in fact. The first is a, a fear of falling away. They wanna cover their bases. So let's get circumcised just in case. Let's keep observing dietary laws just in case. Let's keep putting rules and regulations around ourselves. And, and, and then the second fear, That's motivating this, not just a fear of damnation because I'm not doing enough. It's a fear of the Judaizers, the false teachers that have come into Galatia that are teaching them this scripture calls that the fear of man, the fear of man can twist you in knots. In fact, Proverbs says the following in Proverbs 29, 25, it says the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. It's a trap. Says that great theologian, Admiral Akbar. Some of you got that. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man, you get that? Fear of man and trust in the Lord are opposite ends of the spectrum. They are antithetical to each other. And so you follow a religion because a preacher tells you to. You follow a religion because the social pressure of your faith family makes you feel forced into submission. That's a fear-driven faith that leads to legalism. White knuckling. Let me just hang on. And that, that kind of fear eventually damns the soul because it won't last. It's a Jesus-plus religion. You need to believe, but then you also need to do this other list of things and avoid this other list of things. And, and when the Christian faith is twisted in this way, it becomes a mechanical shark. It becomes not real faith at all. And so what causes this confusion in Galatia, and, and furthermore, what compounds this confusion, is a fear that grace alone is going to lead to license, Paul says, hey, I I can anticipate what the Judaizers are teaching you, what some of you believe, is that people are going to conclude, well, because Jesus has paid for all of my sin, it therefore must not matter if I sin. The problem is the reason Jesus came was to save you from your sins. Okay? This is what freedom is about. It's not about continuing to play in the mud. It's about getting out of the mud and getting yourself cleaned up. And so here's the message of these roughly 11 verses. We can be enslaved to our sin, we can be enslaved to legalism, or we can be enslaved to Jesus, but you cannot serve three masters. You're going to have to pick one. And so Paul's going to confront both of these great errors in these next 11 verses, and he's going to bring us to a greater understanding of how grace works. And in effect, he's saying, you don't need circumcision. Grace is enough, and grace is can set you free. And interestingly enough, it's through an internal fight among the early apostles that we learn in this passage how grace defeats our sin. Let me tell you why I'm excited about this message this morning. It's not just because it contains what is perhaps my favorite verse in the entire Bible, but it's because I know Having gotten up in front of congregations like this for years now, I know there are people in front of me that struggle with sin. You've used legalism. You've excused it in licenses, all kinds of things. But years and years and years and years and years, there's been something that's trapped you. It has held you down. It's driven you to shame. You're doing maybe what you can at this moment to hide it because you think that's the only defense you got left. And what I'm telling you this morning is the power of these 11 verses is there to set you free from all of that. You can get free. And you can get free today. You can get free right now. And you need to learn, if you're going to do that, how grace all by itself gives you victory over that thing, whatever it is that perhaps has had you trapped. You walked in here today with metaphorical handcuffs on. You can walk out a free man, a free woman, if you can understand how grace all on its own gives you victory. So let me give you those three ways. The first way that grace does this is it frees us from hypocrisy. Let's back up to verse 11, and we read the following, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing, there's an interesting word, the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there's some background here. Cephas is the birth name of a man that Peter would later rename, or a man that Jesus would later rename Peter. Peter. And at this point in his life, Peter has experienced some things that have allowed him to see that it is Jesus alone that salvation comes through, and through that salvation, Jew and Gentile specifically are now one in Christ. We're no longer two separate bodies. We will never again be two separate bodies. There is one people of God, Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave, free, Greek, Roman, whoever. There's one body, and Christ has united all of them. The most... Clear example that he gets comes to him in Acts chapter 10 through a dream. He has a dream, a trance as it were, and this sheet comes down out of heaven and it's got all of these different kinds of animals on it and he hears a voice from heaven saying, kill and eat. Now the problem is, of course, Peter's been raised a Jew and so he's been raised under the law of Moses and apparently there are a bunch of animals on that sheet that the law of Moses told him he's not allowed to eat. And so he has a moment of internal struggle. And he says, "How I, I can't do this. And finally, he, he hears the Lord's response in verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. This is God's way of giving Peter a vision that teaches him that Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses. His death and his resurrection has ripped down the veil, not just between God and men, but between Jew and Gentile and men and women and all races and ethnicities. God God has brought everybody together through Christ. And then Peter will go on from there to the house of Cornelius, who becomes a believer in Jesus, this Gentile man. And, and while Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit comes, he falls on all of those Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, and they start speaking in tongues and Peter goes, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember the last time this happened. It was at Pentecost, and it was all of my fellow Jews doing this. So apparently, Jesus, apart from circumcision, apart from dietary restrictions, apart from ethnicity, now has died for all, Jew and Gentile. He's been raised to give life to all, Jew and Gentile. He sent the same empowering Holy Spirit to all, Jew and Gentile. We are one. We have the same Lord. We have the same gifts, all because of the grace of Christ. And so by the time he gets to Antioch, which is where this showdown that Paul describes goes down, there's a church made up of a supermajority of Syrian Gentiles. And he is so convinced with this truth that he's eating with them. All right? Bring out the pork rinds, bring out that deer you shot last Thursday. All right? I don't care if it's got hooves on it, I don't, whatever. We're gonna eat it, whatever it is. But then a group comes in from Jerusalem, led and really sent by James, and for the first time, for the first time, this new belief is going to be tested. We're all one in Christ, but but up until this point, we ain't all been one together. But now, Jew, Gentile, they're in the same room together. And we've we've got to make sure we really believe this. And out of fear... Peter takes that bag of pork rinds and goes, well, oh, he wipes his beard. Trust me, I know, stuff gets trapped in here when you're Yeah. He just wants to make sure there's nothing in there. And then he starts behaving in a way that is rather condescending in front of his Jewish brothers toward his Gentile neighbors. Have you ever seen anybody act one way in front of one group of people and act a completely different way? That's what Peter's guilty of here. And he does this for one reason, because the other Jews are doing it. The other Jews are doing it. Anywhere you see a group, whether it's motivated by political affiliation, enforcement of cultural practice through intimidation and peer pressure, wherever you see group think like that, you are witnessing something that is rooted in the fear of man, something. That will hold you in bondage, and it is always the result of hypocrisy. Now, we need to do some careful defining here. What is what's hypocrisy? Because we throw that word around, right? Don't we? I, I hypocrites. The church full of hypocrites. Yeah. Okay. All right. Do we even know the meaning of the term? Hypocrisy is a particular kind of sin. It has a particular definition. Hypocrisy is not when you fail. That just makes you a sinner. Hypocrisy is not when you disobey. The origin of the term comes from the Greek drama. It describes someone who would put on a mask and in their, their profession of acting would pretend to be somebody that they were not. And so what happens is the Christian then co-opted this term and applied it ethically to describe moral duplicity. Somebody that conceals their true character. That's what Peter was doing. I'll right? put, the, put the pork behind my back. I don't want anybody to see... That this is something I do. It's someone who acts one way in front of this group, but in a totally different way in front of another group. Someone who purposefully appears as someone that they are not. And in response, Paul just calls Peter out on this in front of everybody. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall in that place? He does it not because he hates Peter, but because he loves Peter. And he does it because it's not just damaging to Peter. It's damaging to the church at Antioch. Can you imagine the confusion? All these new Syrian Gentiles have been eating with this man who is an apostle who they know has borne witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He's joined them in their meals and in their freedom. He is teaching them about Jesus. And then all of a sudden this other group comes in and they start adding rules and regulations. And then the Jewish people start to suddenly to feel forced to pick sides. And the result is you've got this whole group of new believers trying to live by the law covering sin rather than just purging it out of their life. That's what a hypocrite is. Cover it up, pretend to be something you're not. Several years ago, Superstorm Sandy hit New York's coast. It hit hit a lot of the coast, but but that was really kind of ground zero, and so I, I was leading a network of some 64 churches at the time, and we sent a group of volunteers repeatedly, like every other month. We were sending volunteers to Long Island, Uh, Because right there on the Atlantic coastline, homes have been destroyed. And so we were rebuilding homes and and trying to help these people put their lives back together. And I remember one of our uh, people that we were helping out was an older lady who had been widowed. She was about 73 years old, and she lived in a home that and she'd already given all of her insurance settlement money to a contractor. And we walked into what looked like a, just an immaculately restored home, but she was having issues, particularly with her electrical stuff. The lights were browning out, something just wasn't working right. And, and so when our volunteers punched a couple of holes through that newly painted sheetrock, they found this. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's Romax, that's wiring. So when you take the plug for whatever it is, your computer or whatever it is, and you, you plug it into the wall, that, there, there's not like a, just a power source right there. You know, it's got to get power from somewhere else. And what, what brings the power to that outlet is that wiring right there. But if it's healthy wiring, it won't look like that. That wire looks like that because the seawater came in from Superstorm Sandy and the salt corroded the wiring. So... On the other side of the wall, it looks beautiful. had a beautiful new roof on it. It was wonderful. Inside the wall, we discovered that this contractor had not, in fact, done what he should have done. He had not rewired the house. The result is we were standing in one of the most beautiful fire hazards I'd ever seen. (laughs) Take a good look at that. Because some of you, that's your life. You're trying to cover up all kinds of stuff. But when God looks at your life, he sees that. And he wants to free you from that. Hypocrisy is damaging. Hypocrisy hypocrisy is destructive. And it will do one of two things to you. either, On the one hand, it will, it will, you will willfully expose and be proud of your sin. Or on the other hand, you, you, can't, you find you can't even be yourself because you're spending all your time trying to create a fake life. To impress everybody else because of the fear of man or because maybe you think someone has convinced you you have to do this, you have to do this in order to have a relationship with Christ. There's only one cure for hypocrisy, and that is to live a life that is driven by grace. And if you do that, it'll free you from hypocrisy. Jesus wants to free you from hypocrisy because he loves you. Now, the question is, how does this happen? Well, here's the second way that grace freaks frees us from this. It doesn't just free us from hypocrisy. It does so by planting us in the truth. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now this is a powerful summary of the truth of the Christian gospel applied to this particular situation. He goes, we're not Gentile sinners. That, that probably sounds rather condescending to those to we Gentile boys and girls. But the truth of the matter is he's talking largely to a Jewish population and reflexively at this point in time Uh, I don't don't believe our Jewish friends think this of us 20 centuries later, but at this point in time, there had been some cultural pressure and some misunderstanding. And so these in the Jewish mind, if you're not Jewish, you're just a sinner by default. And so Paul, in describing that mindset, says, and yet. In other words, we, we might be Jews, but we're still sinners in need of justification. And just like our Gentile friends, there's only one path to justification, and that path is not through the works of the law. And he uses this phrase justification. Justification is a legal term. Uh, if, you're not, you know, if you're new to the faith or maybe you're not a believer yet, the only place, other place you may have heard this term would be if, you, if you've ever gone to court. And you see the gavel come down. And you see someone declared innocent. That's what justification means. It means to declare you to be righteous and fully pleasing to God. And so what Paul is saying here is this, if it's possible for you to obey all of God's moral standards with absolute perfection, then sure, you can be justified on the basis of your own merits. Apparently, there were some people from Jerusalem church who believed this. Then there were others who maybe didn't believe it, but out of fear of their fellow Jews decided to submit to this anyway. Paul reminds them, look, it's not enough to be Jewish. We are Jews and they are Gentiles, but we come to God the same way because we're both Christian and that's what it takes to come to faith in Christ. Anytime someone adds works to their faith in Jesus, the root of that, okay, if you're trying to justify yourself by your own works, you're trying to impress God by what you do, you've forgotten who Jesus is. that's, That's really the problem. And so the question is, am I relying on who I am? Am I constantly living in insecurity, particularly when I fail, which is more often than I will admit, or am I relying on what Christ has done for me? Am I convinced that it's his death and resurrection that is the only reliable basis for why I can be in a right relationship with God? That is the only starting point, brothers and sisters, for a truly grace-driven life. Real grace is... Is rooted in the truth that I am justified by faith. Here's the key word alone. Alone. I don't add anything to this because it is not my life that justifies me. My life's what got this whole thing jacked up to begin with. It is not my death that's gonna ultimately pay for this because physical death's not enough to cover a lifetime of rebellion and arrogance and condescension toward a righteous, holy God, which is why conscious eternal torment is coming my way unless that gets figured out. And moreover, my resurrection, (laughs) it's not happening at all, apart from another one. It's not my life. It's not my physical death. There's no hope in me rising again. The only hope I have is through his life, his death, his resurrection of Jesus. Now, where does that leave us? Because if you're still kind of living in a fear-based sense of faith, at this point, you're like, you can't just leave it at that. Because if you just leave it at that, people are just going to sin. They're going to commit all manner of sin. Well, that's where we misunderstand the true nature of God's grace. It it doesn't just free us from hypocrisy and ground us in the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. In, In doing those things, it empowers us for victory. Jesus did not die principally to save you from hell. You shall call his name Jesus. That's what the angel said to Joseph. For he will save his people from their sins. This is what we miss. It's what we miss. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. So here's the concern of the Judaizers. There have to be some rules here. Otherwise, if we just leave this up to grace, people will interpret that however they want. They will interpret it to mean anything. We'll have all kinds of immorality, even within the church. You won't be able to tell the difference between the two. And Paul's argument clears this up. If my identity is in Christ, and that by itself leads me to sin, then that would mean that Christ himself is a servant of sin. But what do we know about Jesus? He was perfect. So the answer is not in the boundaries. In the discipline of mathematics, we speak of bounded sets and centered sets. What the Judaizers were trying to introduce into the church was something the church did not need, something that would have been destructive to the church. They're saying, you all need some boundaries. You need some rules. And what Paul is saying is, no, you, you don't need rules. What you need is a center. That's what you need. So think about this rope for a minute. I can tether this rope to anything else on this stage in a way that keeps me from walking off the stage. Or I can put a fence around the stage. I can electrify that fence. might be entertaining to some of you. (laughs) It's all all going to be. So I can be conscious. Now, so what would that mean? Electrified fence right here. You can't leave the stage. Well, that means I... I'm not gonna to get too close. With every successive time I get up here to preach, I'm just a little further back. Or I can trust that the rope, because of where it's tied, is gonna keep me from walking off the stage. See, this is, this is the issue. It is not, brothers and sisters, having a bunch of rules and regulations. It is making sure that I'm tethered to a center. And Paul just described that center for me. His name is Jesus. So if I'm tethered to center, and I go, well, I, I want to do this with my sex life. You see how this works? I want to do this with my money. No, 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 he's got that too. He controls absolutely everything. You don't need boundaries. You need a center. Amen. That's what it means to live in grace. Now, what, what does that look like in practically? Well, let me, let me choose a really innocuous, non-awkward example. Talking to our children about puberty. I've done this with our two boys, and thank God the the only one left is a daughter. That one's on Mrs. Rainey. I'm trying to tell her that driving is too, but she keeps pushing. she got no problem with the sex talk, but the driving, she keeps putting that on me. So with both my boys, I've had that conversation, multiple ones. How do you teach a son or a daughter? There's there's a couple different ways you can do that, okay? One is a law-based way of doing it that sets boundaries. It's all about what you shouldn't do. Fornication is a sin. By the way, it is. In this day and age of permissiveness, that might be a good reminder for us. God does not find your sexual immorality to be cute. He's not scrolling social media looking at your illicit relationship and pushing the like button because you have matching sweaters. He finds it offensive because it's idolatry. Okay, So it's right. Fornication is a sin. But you can do this in a couple different ways. You can can do it in the foolish way of license fathers, which means you just give them a box of condoms and tell them not to get in any trouble. Don't jack up your life. Don't jack up somebody else's. That's called the Tom Leica school of puberty. You can do it in a law-based way. Scare the ever-loving crap out of him. Don't do this. Don't do that. Put all kind of boundaries around him. Here's the thing you need to know about teenage boys, because I was one. We love to cross boundaries. Or you can do this in the way Paul's talking about here. How do you do that? Son, we've had this conversation. I've told you everything that's coming. Some of those things have already come. Buddy, here's what you need to know. We follow Jesus. Let me tell you something encouraging about Jesus. Jesus went through this. Jesus woke up one morning and discovered hair where there wasn't any the night before. Jesus went through a period where he tried to speak and sounded like Barry White and Cindy Brady in the same sentence. (laughs) Jesus had to figure out what to do with his sexual desires. Jesus is the one who had body parts do all kind of crazy, unpredictable things. Just like, listen, son... There's nothing you're going through right now that Jesus hasn't already done, and He did it perfectly. You just stay close to Him. You just stay tied to His Son. You don't need boundary. You need a center. You need a center, son. That will set you free. Just follow Him, and that, by the way, brings us to the most powerful part of this passage. This is my favorite verse in all the Bible. Verse twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus, that's the only hope I've got. It's the only hope you have. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's interesting is it's not just in this verse, but 13 times in six short chapters throughout this entire letter, Paul returns to the theme of crucifixion. Returning to the law of Moses, all that does is demonstrate your impotence. That's all it is. It's like a speed limit sign. Well, let me be more specific. It's like a speed limit sign on the bypass in Shepherdstown. Is it possible to go 40 miles an hour down that road And Jefferson County knows that. That's why they sit parked out there. Right? What do you do? He pulls me over for going 43 and a 40 because they will do that on that road. Does it make any difference to him for me to say, officer, I just had this thing cleaned up. You could eat off the floor mats. Get in this thing. Look at it. It doesn't make any difference to him. The speed limit is what the speed limit is. He, this is what the law of Moses is. It just reminds you of everything you've broken. It just reminds you of what God sees if the only thing he looks at is you. Let's look at another graphic illustration from Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, you know what that means? The best day you got, the absolute best day of your life, are like a polluted garment. That's an ancient reference to a used feminine product. You know what he's saying? He's like, on your best day, if that's all you got, it's like you going getting one of those out of the trash and giving it to me and expecting me to be impressed with it. It, it sounds so offensive, but listen, it, the first key to freedom is understanding. God is not impressed with you. He will never be impressed with you. You win all the trophies you want. You get as ripped as you want. You be as successful as you want. You stuff your pockets with all the money you want on your best day. This is what it looks like. The only answer for you, for me, for everybody in the world is in verse 19. To die to the law. Die to the law. Why? Because that's the only way you're going to live to Christ. Christ. Everything about your life, my life, becomes identified with him. That's what Paul's saying here. I have become one with his perfect life and with his atoning death and with his victorious resurrection. And the result is I'm not even the one living this life anymore. Oh, boy, that's a relief. I'm not even living this life anymore. Christ lives in me. How? By faith. By faith. Identify, identification with Christ means that God works for you by paying for your sin, in you by bringing you to repentance and making you a new creation, and through you, sanctification. The life I now live is the life I live by faith. I'm not, not perfect. I'm going to fall. I'm going to sin. I'm going to take the rope off occasionally. Those things are going to happen in my life. I got to make sure that I'm centered. I'm not perfect, but I am new. I'm new, I've, I have something that I didn't have before that empowers me to live free and whole in the true grace of God and, and the thing that causes me to do that is no less than the all of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. When you give all of yourself in faith to Jesus, Jesus gives all of himself through grace to you. That is very good news. And it's all possible because of the cross. That's what makes this the centerpiece. You know, It's an election season, so when people run for office, they come up with uh, sayings, right? What's my core message? How, How do I express that message in a slogan that's catchy, that's seven syllables or less? I can get it on a bumper sticker. People will remember it. They've been doing this for a long, long time. Let me take you back to Zachary Taylor, a president for the people. That's cool, isn't it? It's catchy. Plus, nobody, no president before him was ever for the people. <laughs> apparently. Lincoln's first. Vote yourself a farm. I'm not exactly sure what that means. On his second one, which happened right in the middle of the Civil War, so this will make sense. Don't swap horses midstream. <laughs> president McKinley. His was patriotism, protection, and prosperity. Herbert Hoover. You ready for this one? Y'all know Hoover basically started the Great Depression, right? So, so this will move you. A chicken in every pot, a car in every garage. That didn't work out so well, did it? <laughs> Eisenhower. What was that one, guys? Come on. I like Ike. Yeah. Catchy, swift. Reagan said it's morning again in America Bush 41 spoke about a kindler, gentler nation. Clinton told us to no, not stop thinking about tomorrow. Bush 43 spoke of a compassionate conservatism. Obama st- talked to us about change we can believe in and our current incumbent wants to. Yeah, you see, see how this works? The Galatians were off course because they were off message. They forgot what they were, what, what their faith had had taught them from the very beginning. And in the midst of this moral concern, they're in danger of losing the very thing that makes them moral. Because their own works are not going to be able to do that. And so Paul said, get back on message. Get back on course. And here's your core message. Never never has a president of the United States in the past or will one ever in the future, nor the present one, ever come up with anything that can come close to topping this. Crucified with Christ you struggling with something that just keeps having victory over you and you don't know how to overcome it you keep trying to white knuckle through it by self-effort you're putting all kind of boundaries around yourself only to prove to yourself that you can knock it down you built some silly artificial standard of morality to make yourself feel better to the point that you're now like Peter judging others because they're not fitting within your box and submitting to your own silly self-constructed artificial form of morality Do you think that living free means you can have this perverted understanding of grace? You can just live however you want you think it's okay? The answer for you is in this phrase. I am crucified with Christ. And because I am crucified with Christ, I am raised with Christ. Because brothers and sisters, he did not just live in perfection 2,000 years ago. This is my hope. You want to be set free? Hear this. His perfect life did not terminate 2,000 years ago. He rose from the dead. He still lives. And he lives in me and through me with that same perfection right now. And I can and I will, by God's grace and in the face of my enemy, overcome. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the cross of Christ for the victory that it brings. Lord, so often in Protestant circles we speak, and we speak rightfully, about the fact that you paid our sin debt. You died as our substitute. Lord, we thank you for that. But so often in these same Protestant circles, we forget that this wasn't just to pay our debt, it was to give us victory. And so, Lord, may we once again recover the the meaning of, of what the Latin fathers called Christus victor. The idea that in your death, you defeated all of our sin. And in your resurrection, you defeated all death. And may we live in that. May we find our identity in it. Father in heaven, if there's anyone here right now who has never put their faith and their trust in you, Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, they would come to understand what this means. Father, not just some get out of hell free card, not just some way to have our sins forgiven, but to be set free. To live in exactly the way that you long to empower us to live. May that be true of every person in front of me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.